All right, last couple things. Um, just a reminder, Christmas Eve, uh, we do have services here, 5 and 7 p.m. Uh, be praying for people that are coming through these doors. Christmas and Easter are those times where unsaved people tend to um, grace us with their presence. And it's an opportunity to, to share the love of Christ with them and hopefully that their hearts would be pointed toward the cross. Secondly, Christmas Day, 9.30 p.m., we offer a Christmas Day service. Uh, Doug Brown, one of our other elders, he puts on, him and his family, a Christmas Day uh, morning. Um, so if you want to come and do some readings and uh, learn about Jesus and worship through some time together, feel free to stop in. Uh, last thing, inside the coffee shop, some uh, you folks have been asking about this Paul Tripp book, Come Let Us Adore Him. Uh, especially some of you ladies, I think you might be going through it at a study or something, but they are in the coffee shop. And there's tons of books back there for gifts, for stocking stuffers and stuff too, so feel free to grab one on the way out. Uh, if I have introduced myself, my name is Brad Knoll. I'm one of the uh, staff pastors here oversee worship and outreach, and I get the opportunity to share the word this morning. So if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. Our ushers will put a Bible in your hand. You put your hand up. And then uh, will you stand with me as we uh, read God's word Prepare our hearts to hear from him. Um, Christmas messages to you. So we are going to start this morning in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 11. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the men of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us um, an unpacked gift in you. And Lord, as we, uh, we kind of dissect this a little bit and, and remember that you are good, Lord, may you stir our hearts and we know more of you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Folks, you may have a seat. So the title of this message, if I was to place one, would be uh, The Past Unwrapped in the Present. There are three things that I want you to take away from today's message as we um, kind of unfold what God had planned over the years. And the first and foremost thing is, is that God is in control. That's your first point. The second one is that God has a purpose for you and me. And then lastly, there is a hope, and that hope is only in Jesus. As we read this passage, it's one of those passages where you think, why are we reading this at Christmas time? You know, well, it's a remembering passage. He says, remember. And look at some of the verbiage here as he says it here. Remember this and stand firm. It's something that we can grasp on and, and know that God has written it to you that we can hold on to as a promise. But then he goes in verse 10 here and says that he being God, there's no one like him, but declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. And then he says that I will accomplish all my purpose. And then lastly, at the end there, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. We're going to talk about a word this morning, kind of starting off, a word um, that sometimes makes us shiver in our boots. 
and that's the sovereignty of God. And for me, like as I was thinking about this this week, sovereignty is the knowledge that God is in control of everything. A definition for you, sovereignty of God is the Christian teaching that God is the supreme authority and all things are under his control. The Bible dictionary defines it this way, that God's sovereignty as his absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. I want to read this uh, quote from Spurgeon. It says, There is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty hath ordained their afflictions. A sovereignty overrules them, and a sovereignty will sanctify them all. This is nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly to contend than the dominion of the master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his hands, the throne of God, and his right to sit upon the throne. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth of which they have made such a football as the great stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion the worlds and to make the stars. They will allow him to be in his almary to dispense his alms and to bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof or light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth. And we, when we proclaim and enthrone God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed and execrated. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on his throne is not a God of love. They love him anywhere better than they do when he sits with his scepter in his hand and his crown upon his head. Wow. As I read this, I was just like, I have no control whatsoever. But as he kind of breaks this apart, this doctrine of, of sovereignty is something that we can, we can gleam onto and say, God, yes, you are in control of everything. You are in control of when I come down with cancer. You are in control when I don't have a last penny in my pocket. You are good. It's a hard pill to swallow. Anybody felt that? I did. I was sitting this week and I was baiting my two boys. And they were playing in there, splashing, getting water everywhere. It's like, stop it. But it came to mind just thinking like, well, what if, what if God decided today that they would draw their last breath? but I still have that same thought that, God, you are good? Probably not. To be truthful, I probably would say, God, I'm mad. I'm upset. But this doesn't take away the fact that he's still sovereign. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
as I was doing some studying this week, I came across this article, and it says, there are no limits to God's rule. This is part of what it means to be God. He is sovereign over the whole world and everything that happens in it. He's never helpless, never frustrated, never at a loss. And in Christ, God's awesome sovereign providence is the place we feel most reverent, most secure, and most free. Whenever God acts, he acts in a way that pleases him. God is never constrained to do the things that he despises. He is never backed into a corner where his only recourse is to do something he hates to do. He does whatever he pleases. I find comfort in this. I was reminded of of the song, It Is Well With My Soul. If you don't know the backing to this song, this gentleman, you know, he, he was a wealthy guy. And there was this big fire in Chicago that made him basically, he didn't have any more money. He, he was broke. And on the heels of that, his son passed away. And then some months later, he had to make a trip across the Atlantic. He came back. His family came back on a different boat. Four of his daughters died drowning with only his wife surviving. And he writes this song, It Is Well With My Soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way. What's the rest of it go? Oh, you guys know it. That's good. (laughs) But it is well. It is well. Would you be willing to do that? Would you be able to turn and say, God, you are sovereign. You are good. I don't know if I could. I would have a hard time. Lord, may you... uh, Give us a strength to do so. You know, I've been here, I think it's going on about 15 years that I've been a part of SBC. I've been on staff for 12 years. Some of you only know me as, you know, the worship pastor here. My prior life, though, um, it is full of disaster and brokenness. And I want to share a little bit of that with you today as we kind of tie this into the sovereignty of God. As, as a child... I was born to unwedded parents. My mother uh, found out she was pregnant with me and left my dad. And she moved back to Pennsylvania. And my father ended up, um, he was in the military and went back to Hawaii. And he was living there at the time. My mother, she gave birth to me. She was 18 years old. Um, we lived in a trailer in the middle of Hillbillyville in Pennsylvania with a couple of my uncles, my aunts, my grandparents, all kind of stuffed into this little uh, trailer. And she ended up meeting um, a gentleman, got married. And through the course of events, he kind of brainwashed her to ship me off to my dad in Hawaii when I was five. So I found myself on a plane at five years old going to meet a man that I didn't know. Uh, arrived in Hawaii, woohoo! Tropical paradise, right? Well, with that, um, my father was uh, living with a woman, which was my stepmother at the time. They took me in. We lived in a little one-bedroom condo, slept on the floor. And over the course of the next couple years, I found myself uh, being abused in many, many ways. Uh, Verbally, physically, sexually. Uh, It was rough. You know, as a third, third grader, you think, I guess this is normal. You, know, you don't know. 
Um, and with that, I stayed with him for the next couple years. And in sixth grade, my father went to American Samoa, which is in the Southern Pacific, to tend to my grandmother's funeral. And him and four of my uncles got on a boat, and they disappeared into the middle of the Pacific. And they were never to be found. The Coast Guard searched for them for many, many days. Didn't find a boat, didn't find the people. And to be frank, I kind of take it as what the Word tells us, that it's better for a man to have a millstone around his neck and to be cast into the bottom of the sea than to mess with a child. And I say that not to bring condemnation on my father, but to let you know that things happen. And God allows things, and sometimes we don't know why. Well, moving forward, after he died, I found myself free, and I started to rebel. And the worst part of this all is he was a proclaiming Christian. Do as I say and not as I do. So it definitely pushed me away from Jesus. It just said, I just said, I want nothing to do with that. Uh, so I started to um, be involved with, with alcohol and drugs and promiscuity at a, at a young age through 7th, 8th, ninth grade. And it wasn't until my ninth and 10th grade year that um, there's a gentleman and his wife here in town that some of you may know. His name is Rick and Deb Wilson. They became kind of some spiritual parents of mine. And it was the first time that I saw a glimpse of the loving God and not the God that was willing to have the hammer and the smash you at any point in time. Fast forward five years, God intervened. I was at college in Sacramento, went to a, a camp at Hume Lake, and the only reason me and my buddies were going to church were to pick up on girls anyways. So I was like, what better place to go than a place where there's a bunch of girls? Well, we went down there, and um, God had a different plan. And it was the time that, that he intervened and, and told me of his grace and his love and his mercy. And, I, and the light kind of just went, boom, and turned on. You may say, well, Brad, why are you telling me this? Are you telling me this to give self-pity? Absolutely not. I tell you this because God is sovereign. I tell you this because God had a plan. And as I look back on all this brokenness, maybe you're sitting here with, with, man, I have some brokenness in my past too. He uses that. If it wasn't for that brokenness, I wouldn't have met my wife. If it wasn't for that brokenness, I wouldn't have three beautiful kids. I wouldn't be standing here today. Maybe the reason I went through that brokenness is for this very moment, right now. As I'm looking at you, I'm sharing with you what God has done and where he has brought me. Maybe it's a reassurance to you that he is bringing you from destruction to his marvelous light, the sanctification process. And you're like, wow, there is some wrecked up, messed up stuff in this world. We live in a fallen world. We do. We all have or had or have, because I still sin. We all have sin nature. But the question is, do I believe and do I trust in the sovereign God, the lover of my soul? This kind of brings me to um, purpose. 
You know, as God has brought me from point A to point B and is bringing you from point A to point B, God had a purpose in your life. Point number one is that God is in control. He is sovereign. He is good. He directs the paths of us. But that path leads to a purpose that he, he has for you and me. Before we can kind of understand that purpose, we need to understand that God is eternal. He's outside of space and time. And there's a few verses that I want to share with you as we kind of build upon this. And the first one is Job chapter 36, verse 26. And I'm, I'm going to kind of go through these, but you can turn there if you'd like. But it says, Behold, God is exalted, and we do not know him. The number of years is unsearchable. Psalms 102.12 says, But you, O Lord, abide forever in your name to all generations. Isaiah 40.28, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. These are just a few verses kind of stating the obvious. But to build upon that a little bit more, in building the case, John, the Apostle John, he writes in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jumping down to verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians chapter 1, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and him all things hold together. We state these few verses here, especially in the New Testament, pointing back that Jesus was there at the beginning. He was there at creation. He was there before time began. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, why did Jesus have to come? Well, Jesus came that he is a tangible um, human that we can touch and feel and hear and and know that we can relate to him because he says who he says he is and this is the message to you that that since he was there at the beginning he knows you intimately he loves you and cares for you and that you have a purpose and this is number two that you have a purpose looking back at at the genesis account in genesis chapter one we find that It says, let us make man in our image. Us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You were created in the image of God. This past week I was driving with my kids. I think we were heading to the church here. And Olivia, my oldest, she's seven. And she goes to Glenshire Elementary. And they've been learning about insects and animals and all these different things. And she turns and says, Dad, are we mammals? It's just like random, like mammals. I was thinking in my head, like, oh, this is a good opportunity that I can get something spiritual in there, you know? So I told her in my response, I didn't want to step on her teacher's toes and tell her that she was a heretic and she's going to burn forever. No, just kidding. But, no, her, her teacher is, is a huge blessing, just in case she's listening to this sermon. We love you, Miss Johnson. We do. We love you very much. 
But my response, in the science world, yes, we are considered mammals. We have hair, we breathe, we, you know, ladies nurse their babies, um, you know, all those different things. We're warm-blooded. But when we talk about spiritual things, we're different from creation. If you look back on the Genesis account, God spoke things into existence. He said, let there be light. He said, let the animals come forth. Let the birds fly in the air and the sea and come with fish and animals and creatures. What was different between how he created you and me? How he created Adam? He formed him. He formed him from the dust of the ground. He made him. Everybody played with Play-Doh before, right? Think of that. God molding man. And then what did he do? He breathed into his lungs. And it says that man became a living creature. We're different. We're not, I guess, classified as mammals. But we are different. We are made in the image of God. Not for our own boasting, but pointing back to him. We are image bearers. I think of the Olympics. You know, so the Olympics, it starts in Athens, right? And they have the big cauldron, fire. And they come up and, you know, the lady with her little thing in her hair comes up in her Athens suit and lights it. She gets the flame, right? Well, that flame ends up going across the world. So that flame is representation of Athens, that cauldron. Same thing for you and me. We are a representation of Jesus. We are the light of the world, the salt of the earth. We are not the light. We are bearers of the light. That makes sense. <coughs> Excuse me. Genesis chapter 1. Let's turn there with me. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Let's read this account of creation of man. When we talk about purpose. God gave Adam and Eve purpose. Genesis chapter 1. 26 through 28. On the sixth day, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then dropping down, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Somewhat paraphrased there. But God gave Adam and Eve a purpose. He said, do this. Subdue the earth. Go name the creatures. You know, you have dominion over these creepy things and whatever not. I, for one, don't have dominion over the creepy things still. I'm scared of spiders. But Adam and Eve, that was their purpose at that particular time. Your purpose is what we're going to find out, is that you are indeed the light of the world. I came across this, uh, this quote out of um, Emblems of the Infinity King. You can find it in the bookstore out there, but Jesse gave us this book as kind of a Christmas gift, and I found it interesting that Ryan Lister states it this way. God made you to know him, which is why knowing him is the most important thing about you. He made you not just to know about him, but to really personally know him. To do this, you must listen to him and follow his words. You will be tempted to write your own story. You'll be tempted to write the king's story for him. You'll want to control him, even though you cannot. You'll even be tempted to try to take his place. 
Going back to that Spurgeon quote, when, when God ascends his throne, we tend to gnash our teeth. When God ascends his throne, we tend to want to tell him, no, you should do it this way. That's not the case. Lord, may you give us the heart to trust in you, knowing that you are indeed the sovereign I am. Let us not be like Adam, who had a purpose, who had a vision, who had God walking hand in hand with him in the garden to turn and say, you know what? I'm going to do it my own way. Me and my wife, we're going to go eat this fruit that you tell us not to eat. And I'm going to do it blatantly in front of you because I know best. Maybe not be like him. But even Adam and his, his futile mind and what he did, he gets the bad rap. But I would have done the same thing. I probably would have done it weeks prior to when he did it. At least he did it for however long he did it. It would have been like the second day. I'm like, oh, give me that fruit. But even, even in that, he pointed to the Savior. He was the first Adam, but there was another Adam that was coming. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate the second Adam, the one that, that fulfilled the prophecies, the one that did it well, the God incarnate, Emmanuel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul states it this way, and he says, So also it is written, the first man, Adam, because became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven, as is the earthly. So also are those who are earthly, and as is the heavenly. So also are those who are heavenly, just as we were born the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And this is point number three, that there is a new hope. There is a new Adam. The new Adam has come. You know, we're no longer bound to that old sinful man. We're no longer bound to the old ways of, of who Adam was and, and as sin came into the world through one man, it passed to all of us. But now we are under the new Adam. And this is just a tearing back of the layer. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 states it this way, as some of these prophecies in the Old Testament, remember we're pointing forward. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. This is one we want to camp on a little bit. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will, will be with child and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. A virgin shall be with child. This is the contrast between the old Adam and the new Adam. The old Adam, we know, represents earth and sin and all the decay and brokenness. The new Adam represents life and heaven. And we find here that he was born of a virgin. If he was born any other way, he would just be like the old Adam. 
But no, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was conceived and he was born the God-man. God with us. The sinful, sinless, spotless lamb. He came. Erickson states it this way. He's a professor and theologian. He says, if we do not hold to the virgin birth, despite the fact that the Bible asserts it, then we have compromised the authority of the Bible and there is, um, excuse me, and there is in principle no reason why we should hold it to its other teachings. Thus, rejecting the virgin birth has implications reaching far beyond the doctrine itself. Jesse stated last week the importance of good doctrine and good theology. And, and sometimes we, we have a, a hard time distinguishing what is right and what is wrong. And, and we have all these sects of, of Christianity. But there's one, one way that we can kind of line yourself up to. There were some church fathers that wrestled through all these different things. And I want you to stand with me. And, and in some churches, we have what's called readings. We stand with me, and we're going to read what is called the Apostles' Creed. And some of you are like, yes, yes, yes. I've been waiting for this for 15 years, Brad. <laughs> these creeds, these creeds, a bunch of old, holy, dead dudes got together and came up with doctrines of the church that we should stand upon. So will you read this with me? And let's read upon some good theology here. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From hence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Good stuff, huh? You guys can have a seat. Again, things we rest upon. The importance of, of knowing Scripture. Being a Berean, one that studies and shows himself approved. You know, as we come into this Christmas season, as we come into remembering that Christ has come, He has come for a specific reason. From the beginning of time, He had a purpose. He planned it out for you and me. That maybe we would go through the deepest, darkest, nastiest thing, but knowing that there is light at the end of the tunnel and that He is still in control and has your hand and holds you tight and that He will never leave you nor forsake you. What's awesome is, is that some of these things that we've we've read today, and some of the things that are in Isaiah were written hundreds of years prior to Christ's birth. It's one of those things that I think God just kind of put in there that we can be resting assured that he is in control. Listen to some of the things that were prophesied years and years before. We talked about the virgin birth, but that he also would be born in Bethlehem, that he would come out of Egypt, that he would come from the lineage of King David through the his son Solomon and Nathan, that he would heal and forgive, that he would ride a colt, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, rejected, beaten, mocked, spit upon, pierced, that he would be hung on a tree and placed in a tomb. 
That's only in the Old Testament. That's just a few. But most importantly, we know, looking back, that he would raise from the dead, that the tomb is empty, the sacrifice was accepted, he ascended into heaven and will return for his bride someday. This is our hope. This is your purpose in knowing that God knows what he is doing. Do you know him? Do you trust him? You know, I, I gave you a few examples, and to be truthful, talking about God's sovereignty, I, I squirm a little bit because I want to be in control. I want God sometimes to do it my way. May not, that not be the case. You know, I think of the gentleman that came to Jesus and um, I think he was asking for his son to be healed. And, and Jesus and his apostles were like, just believe, dude. He says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. May, may that be the prayer of ours. That Lord, we so easily want to trust in our riches, ourselves, our family, our friends and to place our trust in some other idol except for you. This season, you guys, may we remember that God's gift was unwrapped in the past and that God's message to you today is that he loves you, he cares for you, and that he will walk hand in hand through that trial, through that brokenness, and he will make glorious ruins and breathe life into it. I'm going to ask Deborah and David to come up and I want to speak this, this benediction over you. Thanks for allowing me to share with you today. You know, I don't get to do it too often, but when I do, it's, it's, it's nice to just be able to share hope with you. But it says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for your word May we listen to trust in you evermore, knowing that you are indeed our only hope. God bless you, folks. Merry Christmas.